Calvary have been privileged to be partners with the Cooks for over 20 years as they mission, uh, do their missionary work in the CP uh, Brazil. And to those many years, we've seen all the different stages in their life. I hope you had a chance to hear their ministry presentation during ABF. It's wonderful. But um, we've partnered through uh, many stages, a couple of very serious health issues, and uh, seeing your children start to fly the coop. And uh, so there's, uh, it's been a wonderful partnership. Uh, we've upheld you in prayer all these years. And we're just so thankful that we have such faithful, dedicated missionaries that uh, serve us there and uh, share the light, like we just sang. And so I'd like to introduce Dan, and uh, we're so thankful that we can see your presence during our midst. <clears throat> we can hear you. Good morning. Uh, it is good to be here and to be able to see you folks on a morning where I didn't think many people were going to show up. Our drive down here was a little bit hairy. As we were coming down M66 from the Rockford area, uh, I could hardly see, and we had lightning, so we were blinding our eyes, and I said, Kelly, nobody's going to show up, and then I see a house full here. So praise God for that. We, we thank you so much for these years. I believe we're right around 23 years of partnering with you folks down in Brazil, and we don't take that lightly. We are very, very grateful for your part in our lives. Uh, it's been a partnership where you have put uh, uh, your feet to work, actually. I mean, several times we have sensed the church helping us out. And most recently, two and a half years ago, uh, we were driving through a blinding... I don't know what it is about Michigan, you know. Things just get really bad uh, when we drive here. And we were actually driving through blinding snow, and um, we were rented. We thought there were five cars that were involved in this accident. Uh, when we saw the news later, we found out there were actually 15 different cars involved. Little did we know, we couldn't see anything. And right away, uh, somebody from this church stepped up and rescued us and loaned us a car for the remainder of our furlough. So we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for uh, the way that you have partnered with us. We count it a privilege and a delight to represent you uh, in your outward mission in our corner of the world. So we are at Recife, Brazil, and uh, we do have a lot to share. So uh, if you did uh, hear us this morning, please ask more questions. We didn't have time for questions or answers. Uh, I want to I read a, a verse with you this morning, and I'm probably going to have to read it up here because <laughs> my eyesight's going. I can't read that little screen up there. But uh, just kind of follow along, and I'm going to read this out loud. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. If you're opening your electronic Bible or your paper copy of the Bible, go ahead and keep your finger there. And we're going to come back to this verse. But as I uh, think of the placement of this verse in the Bible, I think it's very important. But I want to illustrate it with the following picture. You may not recognize this, except for the falls in the background. Those are horseshoe falls between Canada and the United States. Well, back in the mid-1800s, Niagara Gorge, at its narrowest part, was about 800 feet wide. 
And on either side of this 800 foot span at its narrowest spot were 225 foot cliffs. And the American government actually assigned, commissioned an engineer to span that gap. He was to build this bridge that you see up here. Now how do you do that? Well, you would readily suggest, well, why don't we bring out the cranes and let's start lifting up all the beams and let's get this bridge spanned and well, you just didn't do that. They didn't have the mechanized vehicles to do that. If you recall back in 1847, that's 13 years before the Civil War. How did they carry their cannons around during the Civil War? They were dragged by horses on carts, okay? So neither did they have the steam engines to be able to go right up the gorge and be able to lift things up. They didn't have these massive cranes. He had to design some method of spanning that gap of 800 feet. And he was very creative. This guy's name was Charles Ellett Jr. In 1847, he was assigned the task. In 1848, he came up with a solution. He decided that he was going to have a kite competition. And all these boys were going to fly their kites, and they were going to try to land their kite on the other side of the gorge. Well, these boys tried for many days. There was one boy named Coleman Walsh who as he looked at the wind, he decided, I need to fly my kite from the Canadian side to the American side. So with what meager funds he had, he caught this little ferry and got across the gorge, down lower, and he got over there, and he actually got a kite to land, but as he began pulling that string, it snapped. Well, the weather was incremental. It got so bad that he was stuck there for eight days on the Canadian side. Imagine being his mom and dad. <laughs> Where's Holman, you know? Well, Holman was stuck up there. But in his tenacity, he kept trying. And finally, in this height competition, lo and behold, the person that won was Holman Walsh. And he was awarded this prize. I don't even know what he got for that. But what did Charles Hullett Jr. do with that one string? As that kite landed on the other side, they tied a thicker string to that little strand and began to pull it. And on that thicker string, they tied a thin rope and pulled that across the span. And on that thin rope, a thicker rope. To where they were pulling rawhide and they were pulling big massive straps to finally pulling steel beams across that span. And that's how they built, what is it called, Bridge of the Americas or something? I forget the name of it. But that is not the bridge it stands today. They built this suspension bridge. And what I find so fascinating and interesting about this is that the nature of progressive revelation in the Bible does this as well. If we go back to that verse in Genesis 3.15, you can see the first mention of what? The gospel. In fact, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium is the first mention, the first word of the Gospel, Evangelium. It's the prototype of it. And with this first declaration of the Gospel, we begin to see that develop through Scripture. Okay? But if we only have this content, if we only have this verse, we are subject, we are at risk of grave error. And there have been errors in the past. In fact, my family, who was from Montana originally, they're from 
Flathead Valley in Montana, and in the lower end of the Flathead Valley, down past Flathead Lake, there's a small Catholic mission called St. Ignatius. Well, we visited St. Ignatius because Kelly and I like going into old cathedrals and looking at all of the, the frescoes, and we like looking at the paintings, and we like looking at stained glass windows. And as I'm looking at this one fresco in St. Ignatius Mission in Montana, I see a picture, a depiction up there of a woman standing on the head of a serpent. Is that what that verse says? No. It's great Aaron. It is the descendant of the woman. It's Jesus Christ who is going to smash the head of the serpent, Satan the age-old enemy, the red dragon in uh, Revelation. But we see here the very first strand that spans the gap. And all through Scripture, we're going to begin pulling more strands and more lines are going to be laid so that there's a broader and fuller understanding, a progressive understanding of the Gospel. The thing is, as we go back to the Garden of Eden, as we began to look at that story more, we began to see not only the strands in one theme, because we're very systematic as Americans. We like systematizing everything. We like putting everything in categories. But really, it's a grand narrative that we have in Scripture. We need to build on that grand narrative. And that's what progressive revelation does. It builds. And as we build on that, we have these building blocks in other areas besides just the gospel that we need to understand because it also helps us understand our culture. So I want to read a little bit more of those first few verses in Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the pool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Aren't we great blame casters? The very first instance of sin, what is our natural inclination as we just kind of class, uh, cast blame? The man did it, the woman, the woman did it to Satan, okay? Now keep in mind here that throughout this story, Eve partook first. But don't imagine that Eve partook first and then she went and looked for Adam. Hey, you need to come try to eat in the fruit of the street. I'm not going to use that tree. That's a different kind of tree over there. That's cool. <laughs> Are those all like the sermon series or messages? That is really neat. Well, anyway, she ate of the fruit, but Adam is standing right here the whole time. She didn't have to go get it. He's seeing every move that she's making, 
he did not do anything to impede her progress in eating that fruit. He is not blameless. In fact, he's going to shoulder the blame. Well, this is the beginning of sin. And God promised that there would be a consequence for this sin. But sin evokes something in all of us. And we're going to see three different responses that sin will evoke in the lives of Adam and Eve. The first one is shame. They were ashamed. Secondly, they were fear. They had fear of God walking in the garden. And thirdly, they were guilty. Okay? And we can see instances of this through the whole story, just in that short little verse, that little section that we read. In shame, we see the verse, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They were ashamed. They saw that they were naked. This was never a problem before. But now they were ashamed of their nakedness and they had to cover up. Secondly, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Not only was there the shame, but there was this feeling of fear. Because of this broken relationship now with God, Adam was afraid. And thirdly, guilt, they were caught. Okay, they were caught literally with their pants down. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right after that, she took some and ate it, and he ate it. I have a question for you folks, okay? We all face all of these. In fact, on the next slide, every single one of them has a juxtaposition. Every single one of those has a counterbalance. If we look at shame, on the other side, we're concerned about honor. On the other side, from fear, we have power. And the juxtaposition of guilt is innocence, okay? We're going to stop right there for a minute. And I have a question for you. As you consider your sin, I consider my sin. What is the prevalent feeling that that evokes in your mind? As you look at those counterbalances of shame and honor, fear and power, and guilt and innocence, what is the prevailing emotion that sticks out in your mind as you consider your worst day, your worst sin? Those of you who have guilt, innocence in mind, raise your hand. Go ahead, don't be shy. Those of you who are concerned about your fear, power, raise your hands. Two. Those of you who are concerned about your shame and honor, congratulations. You folks are unlike most of North America. Because many of you raise your hands regarding shame and honor. The large part of all Western culture. By the way, I got this idea. This idea is in mind. Um, this is adopted from a book called Honor and Shame by Roland Moeller. Um, excellent little book that talks about the building blocks um, of cultures. And one of those building blocks is how we respond to sin. And this are, these are the three different responses. The first group, and I'm going to start at the bottom here, are concerned about guilt and innocence, and that's most Western cultures. Most of America thinks in terms of right and wrong, black and white, I have committed wrong, 
what's going to happen to me. And we're concerned about our guilt. Most Eastern cultures, whether you're talking about Hindus, Hindus or Buddhists, or people groups that are Muslim, most of the Asian world are concerned about their shame. And that's why we talk about shame cultures, or shame-based cultures around the world. You've probably heard that expression. Well, who in the world would fit in the middle with fear and power? Tribal cultures. You're talking about people who are so concerned within their own tribe, not of their shame or honor, and not because they're guilty, they're just fearful of getting wiped out. And so when you're talking about some tribal cultures in Africa or some tribal cultures in South America, these are Indian groups in Papua New Guinea. There are Indian tribes that are fear-based cultures. And that's how they live their lives. Kelly's dad was the first white missionary with the Paymon Indian tribe. Now the Paymon Indian nation, which is about 10,000 Indians in Venezuela, they were used to seeing the Venezuelan miners and others walking through there. In fact, they were somewhat civilized. They wore clothing that were westernized clothing. But when Kelly's dad went in there, they were concerned, they were fearful. And so they kept him at arm's length away. He had to stay outside of the village before they permitted him to come in, before he was allowed to bring the family in. And when the family finally came in, Kelly was about six or seven, her brother Ken was three, and Ken was a little towhead, and all these Indians are touching them because they want to see if they're the same as we are, you know. But they were fear-based. And many Indian cultures or tribal cultures are much more fearful than that. So fearful that they might as well just kill the enemy or kill other family members that serve as a threat to them because that takes care of their fear. And that shows great prowess. That shows great power. So what culture do you live in? Well, most of you raised your hands when it came to shame and honor. But you know what? Most of us don't think that way. In fact, as we're looking at guilt and innocence, and we're looking at what happens when we hear different things. Let's give you a friend, for instance. Let's say that you were all in a public pool and you heard a whistle blow. That could mean one of two things. That could mean it's time for everybody to get out of the water. But it could also mean somebody has done something wrong. And that is a warning whistle. And all of you are going to look around and say, who did something wrong? looking for the wrongdoer. Or what if you're sitting in school and over the PA system from the principal's office they say, Johnny please come to the principal's office now. Everybody is trying to imagine, what did Johnny do wrong? Nobody's thinking, well, maybe Johnny's brother came back from Iraq soldier. Or maybe Johnny just got a visit from his grandma. No. The first thing that comes to mind, the principal's office called, what did Johnny do wrong? That's the scenario in our minds. We think of right and wrong. That's why ethics is so high on the American agenda. Well, who used to think so? And then we're coming up to this political election. Um, right and wrong. 
That's why Brazilians sometimes, even though they're more westernized, even though Brazilians are more led to think in terms of guilt and innocence, there's a mix. There's a blend there of shame and honor as well. And as they look at our political system, they don't really get it. They don't have a two-party system like we do. Well, our two-party system is becoming blended. It's harder to think of what is right and left, to think of conservative, liberal. Brazilians don't think that way. They have multiple party systems, and they build these coalitions, and in their multiple party system, as these coalitions are built at every election season, they want to get the most votes harnessed together because of these big political parties, and they're not thinking in terms of right-wing, left-wing. They're not thinking in terms of, of a platform that is correct or conservative or liberal. They want the most votes. So ethics kind of goes out the window. Right? But we are still a Western-based nation that thinks highly in terms of guilt and innocence. And that can be seen in many different ways. Number one, as we think of the implications of how we respond to our sin. As we read through our Bibles, we tune in, our radars are so tuned in to verses that speak out about our guilt. Can you recall or can you cite any verse that talks about the shame of your sin and you bring brought into a position of honor before God? Immediately. It's harder to do that. And as we evangelize and go to the world out there, this is what we tend to do. We choose language, we choose terminology that is guilt and innocence ridden. In fact, we present the Romans road. And what is the very first verse used in the Romans road? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You are guilty. You're not fearful. You're not ashamed. You're guilty. And that needs to be taken care of. And so we are used to presenting the gospel within this basic building block of our culture in the Western world. It's neither right nor wrong. It's the way we do it. It's the way we understand it. But it may not work abroad. And then we talk about being brought into a position of innocence where we are justified before God. The righteous and holy God. And Christ who is guiltless and sinless he died on the cross in our place, the substitutionary death. This is all great theology, but it is one way of presenting the gospel. Where in other cultures, our one way of presenting the gospel may not function as well, and we may be very frustrated trying to share with the Muslim world, or the Hindu world, or the Buddhist world, our guilt and innocence model it might be hard for them to understand that. Well, we go beyond that. The Romans wrote is one. How about the four spiritual laws? Once again, we show the model of guilt and innocence, and we need to share the gospel so people can understand it. And we as missionaries, we go abroad and we go to some of these countries, whether tribal groups or we go to a, 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 an Arabic nation, and we're extremely frustrated 
Because we'll go five, six, seven years without one convert. But we have all three building blocks in the Bible, starting with the first strands that were thrown across in Genesis 3, and talks about sin, where it provoked in man and woman guilt, fear, and shame. What if in our gospel presentation we talk about the fear that we have because we're standing before a holy God and He is so powerful and yet I am so minute before Him but He will take us and place us in a position of power. Or God will take care of our shame and place us into a position of honor. Well, for Spirit 2.9 we are a holy nation chosen priesthood. We're chosen people. We're royal priesthood before God. Aren't those positions of honor? Would that not be a great gospel model to the people that need to hear that? The problem is sometimes we get a little stuck. Sometimes we need to be a little more situational. And please don't uh, please don't misunderstand that. I'm not talking about situational ethics. Situational is that we need to adapt our gospel message, remain true to the Bible, remain true to the gospel, but maybe show some other verses and texts that will help people to comprehend more fully what are the effects of sin in their life and what it is exactly that God has done in their life when they are saved. Well, maybe they're brought into a position of honor. Maybe we need to show them that before God and with the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they are now powerful. They have power over sin. I shared this in a church a month and a half, last month. And I had a gentleman that came up and says, Dan, that, I was really intrigued by some of this that you're saying. And, um, well, what about, what if... Um, what do we need to do in order for people to understand their guilt so that they can really get saved? <laughs> he didn't quite get it yet. Because all of us have this basic building block that we are so used to that, we, that has been ingrained in us because of our culture, because of our upbringing, because of our church culture, whatever it is. And all I'm saying to you, there is neither right nor wrong, but we need to be adaptable gospel message, and maybe the audience, maybe the target group that I'm working with and that you're working with needs to hear something a little bit different from the Bible. Well, this guy here, Isaiah Kolonowski, he sounds Polish. I don't know who he is. All I know is that he's the opinion editor of an, of an Arabic. I think he's in, the, in Jordan. Um, I'm 25% Polish. My mom's maiden name was Simonowski. So I kind of have this <clears throat> link to him somehow. Isaiah sounds like he's Jewish. I don't know where this guy came from, but look at these words. And he's writing in an opinion editorial in a Jordanian newspaper. A shame culture is one in which individuals are kept from transgressing the social order by fear of public disgrace. On the other hand, in a guilt culture, one's own moral attitudes and fear of retribution in the distant future are what enforce the ethical behavior of a 
member of that society. Like I said, it's not wrong to be guilt or innocent driven. We were taught that way. Our government was established, our government was created after the model of the Roman Republic, where the Pax Romana reigned. Now, many of the great elements that we brought into our nation were used from the Pax Romana. But there's also a problem involved here. We can become so subject to the law, and if the law is in error, we become submissive to law, and man has no power. The Pax Romana. It was symbolized by the faces. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It was a bundle of sticks. And they're wound about with red cords. And either on the post on the side of these sticks, this bundle of sticks, was an axe, either on top of the pole or beside the pole. That bundle of sticks represented the pox, the, uh, the, the reigning power, the unification of all those people under the Roman Empire. You know what the axe was for? That reminded the people of what would happen to them if they didn't follow the law. It's called the facies, that bundle of sticks. From where we get the term facism. Are you a fascist nation? No, we're not. I wouldn't say we are. But there have been. Mussolini, Hitler, whatever one you want to choose. But that's what it represents. And that's what our nation holds as our representative model for our nation. The law stands above everything. But we as people, we tend to be governed that way. And God's perfect plan would be not a republic, not a democracy. It would be God as king over all of us. And we'll get back to that. That's why we have this blessed hope of the new heavens and new earth, where once again, once again, God will be reigning on this earth, and we will be subject to his monarch. I can't wait for that, but as we look at what guilt-based cultures reproduce, there are some implications, especially the shame and honor cultures, is how they face sin. What they would even consider right or wrong is different. The first implication is what does sin produce? What really is sin to them? I pulled a couple of illustrations out of this book that I just showed you, and one of them had an illustration, and Roland Muller here, the author, he was talking about this one girl that... Um, was shot four times by her brother. Now anytime somebody is shot by your brother, we're going to say, that is wrong. She can't do that. The reason that she was shot by her brother was because she was in an immoral situation with another man. And the police did not find her guilty in her culture. It was because she brought shame to her family. In another situation, a girl in the story here, she actually leaves her faith, her Muslim faith, and joins another faith. She marries a man who is a believer. And she was imprisoned because of this. And the family is so concerned about shame, because she brought shame to all of them. 
the father, the brother, they want to get her, they want to get her out of jail, probably to kill her. And they were so pestered by the matriarchs of the family, by the grandmothers in the family. They said, what are you going to do about the shame that she has brought upon us? She's talking to a dad and a brother of this girl. What are you going to do about it? Well, they did guilt. They went to the police station, and they paid a $50,000 guarantee that they would not hurt her if they would release her to them. A $50,000 guarantee that they would not hurt sister or daughter. Upon arriving home, they shot her 13 times. In our mind, that is wrong. It is wrong. But in their mind, it had everything to do with shame and honor. And these are some of the cultures that we need to present the gospel to. We don't turn our sheep aside. We don't turn our eyes aside from these people. We need to share the gospel to these people. We need to be light and salt to these people. We don't understand fully their thinking process of right and wrong. But if you begin to look through the perspective of shame and honor, we can share the gospel as something that takes them out of the shame of sin and brings them to a position of honor before God. Don't even use the expressions of guilt and innocence. Well, the other implication is, how can we share the gospel effectively? How can you folks share the gospel effectively in Battle Creek? Do you think through those terms? Some of you have lived in Battle Creek for 20, 30, maybe 60 years. I don't know. Has Battle Creek changed? <laughs> of course it has. We don't know which end is up or which end is down at times. Our whole world is changing. Our whole world is becoming much more blended. Maybe in 20 years we won't even be able to talk in terms of these three different models, these three different building blocks. Because at least in the large cities, we have a large blend of guilt, shame, and fear. Our message is still biblical. Our message is still Jesus Christ alone, who will save us by faith in Him. But as we think of our wrongdoing, or what sin provokes in our lives, maybe some of the texts that we use could be a little bit different. To bring clearer understanding. I remember one of the first missionary biographies that I read was To the Golden Shore about Adam and Judson. And I was fascinated by that story. It's not that we have all the answers today. In fact, I don't think there is one magical wand or one magical formula that will cause people to come to faith. But as there have been more studies of culture and of the world around us, I wonder if Adam Iron Judson would have suffered some of the things that he did. I don't know, he had, what, three wives? Two or three had passed away. Seven years before he had his first convert. Amy Carmichael went through the same thing in India. Several years before she saw a first convert. And it might be, I don't want to propose this as being dogmatic, it might be that the message needs to be shared in a different way. Somebody that seemed to have a little bit of success in this area was Hudson Taylor. 
And that's because he dressed like the culture, he became like the people, he lived with the people, and he had a formidable testimony with these people. All of them did. But can we ignite, can we jumpstart, can we improve on our understanding of people around us if we understand the basic building blocks of their faith? Can we understand something a little bit more as we peel back the layers of the onion can we understand a little bit more about their thinking processes? Can we, can we understand a little bit more about what their worldview is? Do you even look at people that way? Do you consider, hmm, you know, John and Mary, my neighbors, they think this way. And they probably think this way because of this or that. Or do we just go about our business and don't even get to know our neighbors? It brings me great anguish. When I see people across the street from my house in Brazil that I don't even know yet. We've tried that over the years. The last time we came back from furlough and we got back to our house, every single neighbor but one in those townhouses, what are there, about eight of them in front of us? Huh? Every single one of them, except one of them, had changed uh, residence. Now we have this opportunity with all new neighbors. That's what we're going back to now. We have all new neighbors. I need to be a good student of those people, just as you do here. That is what our partnership looks like. It's not a partnership where we come and present every two or four years, and we share slides about what we've done, and you see all this, and some of you might be bored stiff, and some of you might clap. I don't know. What our partnership is, you have your realm of influence of evangelism here and we partner with you over there. Our responsibility is distinct but equal. You expect us to share the gospel in Brazil and you very well should expect us to share the gospel in Brazil. Guess what? We, as your partners, expect you to share the gospel. become 
so much. Thank you for your word, for the everlasting power and nature of your word, which your Holy Spirit uses to engage in our lives and change us. Lord, as we seek to be agents of change wherever we live, I pray, Lord, that we will take the everlasting and powerful nature of your word into the lives of other people. I pray that it doesn't become stale. I pray that it doesn't become same old, same old. I pray, Lord, that as we engage in your word and we understand how we think and we understand what makes us tick, Lord, help us to look at our neighbors, our co-workers, our co-students, whatever our situation in life, Lord, help us to look to those people around us as those who are dead and their trespasses and sin, and those who need life, and they need the life infused in them that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be infusers of that life. Help us to be faithful to the message and to share it with those who are in need. So I pray, Lord, that your word would serve both as encouragement as a as challenge to us. That as we walk outside of these doors this morning, Lord, that we would be prompted and motivated and, 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 and just excited about sharing what you bring to us. You have justified us. You bring us to a position of innocence. You have brought us to a position of honor to be called children of God. To be able to call you Abba Father. That is honorable. And you have given us the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives who dwells in us and gives us the power to understand Scripture, 